Welcome to the Classical U podcast. I'm Jesse Hake. I'm the director at Classical U. Classical U is a subsidiary of Classical Academic Press, a curriculum and monograph publishing company. At Classical U, we provide training for teachers and parents interested in learning more about classical education, how to deliver this method in your classrooms, in your homes. I mostly spend time talking with presenters and live learning event guests, and we look forward to sharing more with you as you tune in. Thank you. It's great to be with Brian Williams as we're recording together for the Women in the Tradition course, which involves many different presenters. It's been underway for quite some time. It's exciting to have that uh, that just about finished here and uh, always exciting to catch up with Brian and all the work he does here. We're uh, at Eastern University and the Templeton Honors College. They're about to go on the uh, freshman class uh, camping trip that kicks off the Templeton Honors College each year, and uh, I hope to ask about that. Um, the MAT program, uh, master's degree for classical teachers, uh, is another area of responsibility that Brian has. He's worked with several others to get the Principia Journal, Journal for Classical Education, off the ground in the last several years, and um, be some great things to talk about there. His lecture just now was on Christine de Bizant, and just more broadly, the topic of women in the tradition and the nature of uh, uh, the canon and tradition, as he's also written about recently in, in a journal article. So, uh, Brian, thanks so much for letting me chat with you. Jesse, this is great. I always love time to catch up with you, whether it's here or further west in Pennsylvania or wherever we intersect at uh, whatever conference we happen to be at. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So tell me a little bit about the uh, camping trip that you've got coming up with the Templeton Honors College. Uh, how is it that you you head off to the Adirondacks as the first thing you do? To you? Yeah, no, it's great. We leave in uh, less than two days time. Uh, in the Honors College, we invite all of our freshmen to come a week before classes start. And we load up and we drive up north to the high peaks area of the Adirondacks. And we canoe and hike in all of our gear and food and tents. And we take our 30 to 35 incoming freshmen, most of whom who have never spent a night in a tent. And we sleep by a mountain lake for six days and we get to know each other. Um, we climb the two highest peaks in New York State, uh, Mount Marcy and uh, Algonquin. And it's really a remarkable opportunity for the new cohort to form as a cohort and for us to do, for us to orient them to what life in the Honors College is like. When I first came to Templeton, I interviewed a bunch of alumni because I just wanted to know the feel and history of the place. And over and over again, these alumni said, oh yeah, one of the most important things we did was go on this camping trip, which at the time I thought was weird because I was like, this is the first thing you did and it was kind of the fun thing and I hadn't been on it yet. But then, uh, first time I went on it and I saw what happened and how deeply formative it is, I realized, oh, that's why this is so significant. Mm. Because in part, these students from all over the country come together and they live on this mountain lake, you know, for a week, finding firewood, eating together, and don't have a whole lot else to do at times, but play cards, mm. tell stories hike, get each other up and down these mountains and and enjoy one another's company in a kind of leisurely place. Mm -hmm. So that then when they start classes that following 
Monday, they already have history with each other. They have relationships. They have stories together. Yeah. And that's remarkable. The other thing we do when we're up there, we do some orientation stuff. So one of the things I do, I start, they will all begin a, a course with me called The Good Life. And we always start with um, Homer's Odyssey. Mm -hmm. So we all take the Odyssey up to the mountain lake with us. And you'll remember the first four books of the Odyssey are often called the Telemachy. They are about Telemachus, who mm -hmm. is 18 years old, mm -hmm. trying to find his way in an adult world, trying to figure out who he is in relation to his parents and on his own, yeah. and he needs mentors and guides. It's the exact situation my students are in. Yeah. And so they all have their books spread out in a circle in this, in this meadow, in, in, in this grove of trees. I have upperclassmen come as sponsors to help us out. And we do Odyssey 1 and Odyssey 2 as a reader's theater around them as they sit there and kind of take it all in. And then we begin to have our conversations about what it means to grow up, um, just like Telemachus and just in their kind of moment that they're in. So it's, it's a wonderful time. My colleague Fred Putnam uh, goes with us and we teach kids, you know, how to chop firewood and how to build yep. a fire and how to, you know, keep your food away from bears and whatever kind of thing. So it's a marvelous moment in, in the life of our college every year. That's wonderful. Uh, real school A. It, sounds it like, is. Yes. You know, it really, it really is. And there's no cell phone reception. We don't let them take phones anyway, but even if they did, there's, there's nothing to do on their phones. Yeah. And so they have to figure out what to do. And so it's a lot of canoeing and swimming and card playing and fire tending and, and those kind of things. So. Well, that's great. Um, and you've had, I've heard, uh, you know, from you recently, as we've overlapped once or twice, as you say, we're only about an hour and a half apart uh, and, yeah. and go to some of the same conferences. But I've heard uh, some stories I'd love to get get again, or uh, I think you might even have some fresh ones of travels lately hmm. uh, with some of your children. What are, uh, what are some of the high points? Of yeah, I love to travel. And, and we, I grew up in a family. Uh, my dad had a, led, led a musical group. He was a music professor. Uh, and they would go on tour every summer, this group. And so I spent, growing up, I'd spend six, eight weeks on the road, crisscrossing the country. And it's just deep in my family's blood to, to travel. Mm -hmm. And for me, as a classical educator and a historical theologian, I just love walking the places where the people I studied walked, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. so it's remarkable, you know, when you walk through Athens or you walk through Delphi or you walk through wherever you realize oh, Florence, you know, the, this yeah. is where the people lived and walked that I studied. So I kind of have wanted to visit all the major cities of the ancient world. Mm -hmm. And so last summer I, with my daughter, uh, went to initially went to Morocco and spent several days in Fez, an important medieval city, but then went back with her later in the summer to Carthage mm -hmm. in Tunisia. And you just think of all that happened in Carthage. I mean, it was yeah. like Hannibal was there, you know, the conflicts between Rome and Carthage and Athens, the fact that that's where really Augustine spent his childhood. So to go to the Baths of Antoninus, where you know Augustine was living yeah. his rather wayward life for a time, yep. to go to the spot where he and Monica departed, yeah. to go to where the Council of Constantin, or sorry, the Council of Carthage, the Church Council of Carthage happened, just to walk in those kind of places, mm -hmm. um, you know, to go to, go to Bursa Hill where um, Dido watch supposedly Aeneas sail away and to yeah. stand there and see what Dido saw as, as it's also happened to be the place where um, 
King Louis died, um, St. Louis, uh, on a crusade. So just to walk through those streets and to, to feel the air, to see the sights, I mean, it just makes all of those stories live in my yeah. imagination. So that was pretty remarkable. We had a wonderful kind of eight days in Tunisia last summer, going down from uh, Tunis and Carthage in the north and eventually spent a couple nights in the Sahara Desert out in the sands looking up at more stars than I have ever wow. seen in my life. And I grew up in the Ozarks of Southern Missouri where we can still see a few stars, so not so like you can in uh, the Sahara Desert. Yeah. And we just saw, you know, we visited Roman ruins and spent a night in a cave and, and just explored this really wonderful country that, you know, we went to a, um, a second century Roman stone fort out in the desert because the desert doesn't really care about your roads and forts and it's going to go where it will. So now it's just completely abandoned and you, we took four wheelers out there to get to it. And, wow. still, and you know, most of these places, I will say everywhere we went in Carthage, like to go to the spot where um, um, Felicity and I'm just blinking on her name. Oh my goodness. The martyr. Uh, perpetu Perpetua and Felicity. Perpetua. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. We're Perpetua and Felicity were martyred. We were the only people there. Wow. <laughs> and to go to where the, the council of Carthage was and be the only people there. I went to the yeah. baths of Antoninus and there were, there was me and one other person there went to churches, you know, and just nobody was else was there. So yeah. to have those kinds of wow. moments and you feel like the people who lived in these spaces, lived in these places are your host. Yeah. So when I go to, went to Carthage, I felt like, I'm kind of being hosted by Augustine, yeah. in a way, hosted by Hannibal and hosted by Monica, because in my imagination, that's kind of where they live. Mm -hmm. So this summer, uh, I, I was back in Oxford uh, where I did my doctorate and I was presenting a, a paper in my field of Christian ethics. And I had some extra days and I was asking myself, okay, where, where do I want to go? I've been most places I've wanted to in England. Yeah. And so I jumped a cheap flight um, to the remote Greek island of Kefalonia and took a ferry across to Ithaca. Yeah. Of course, Odysseus's famous home island. Mm -hmm. um, and I teach the Odyssey and have taught the Odyssey for 20 years. Wow. And so I had four days by myself hiking, camped out, camping and kayaking wow. around wow. Ithaca, you know, and in the poem at one point in time, he complains about it being in this kind of rocky crag in, in the middle of nowhere. And you're like, okay, it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's stunning, mm. stunningly beautiful. <laughs> and so, again, I was the only person at every place I went, and there were no other tourists there. And a lot wow. of the sites are just, you know, you can access them, but there's 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 no guards, there's no entry fee, wow. you know. So there are Iron Age forts, 3,000-year-old Iron Age forts you can get up on. Wow. One day I spent walking from Polis Bay. I could talk about Ithaca for a long time. Uh, <laughs> Polis Bay, which is where the city was closest to what we think is uh, Odysseus's palace. Mm -hmm. And I spent probably four hours hiking over this ridge to see what it was like to walk from Polis Bay where the city was to Odysseus's palace, yeah. you know, where the people came after they heard their, their sons, you know, who were the suitors who were being yeah. slaughtered, just to see what that was like. Wow. Walk back. I got lost lots of times because over this hillside, this massive hillside, there was kind of a trail, but it was crisscrossed by about a thousand goat trails. And you didn't <laughs> always know which was which. And so full of brambles. Wow. But it was also the bay where um, archaeologists in 1930s found uh, 12 iron tripods, mm -hmm. which... Homer describes being given to Odysseus wow. that he put in a cave when he washed up on shore. And the supposition is 
It's very likely that Homer went to Ithaca, know that knew that those were there, and gave mm-hmm. his poem a little street cred by including huh. them in his wow. poem. So then uh, spent a day out kayaking on the wine dark sea because I said I got to get out on the sea <laughs> and get into the water and experience yeah. what that what that was like. Wow! Uh, it was just remarkable, wonderful little museum close by and this is one of these great experiences everywhere i've gone in the world whether it's morocco tunisia you know turkey uh europe africa whatever if you talk to people mm-hmm. and you're friendly and mm-hmm. you're open you're gonna find people that want to tell you about their place yeah. i had so yeah. many encounters like that in tunisia and morocco but here on ithaca went to this little kind of postage stamp museum on a back street, I wasn't sure it was in the right place. The sign was laying on the ground, right? <laughs> and I go in, and apparently it's a museum that one of the 1930s archaeologists founded. Wow. But it's 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 one big room, and they have stuff there that the British Museum would kill to have for, <laughs> but it's there. Wow. I'm the only person in there, and they have they the iron tripods, parts of them are there, as well as a little fragment that was uh put in the cave that was a prayer to odysseus wow. so the island has always been associated with odysseus yeah but then the the woman running it you know as i walked in she kind of took my name down or whatever but then i asked her a question mm-hmm. and you know i mean i know a little bit about the odyssey in ithaca and so she was like oh this guy's interested 90 minutes later she finished <laughs> regaling me stories and she grew up on the island at the foot of the hill where Odysseus's palace was. Wow. So all of the archaeologists wow. that have come through over the last two or three decades, she knows. So she told me just all of the story of Ithaca and, and the archaeological digs. And then it was like, oh, if you're going to go swimming, you got to go to this beach, not that beach, yep. and go get food there and not there. So anyway, I had a marvelous four days um, hiking and kayaking around Ithaca. Oh, that's so. beautiful. And the, the North Africa trip, at least, was there was an intentional uh, kind of parent-child part of your own children's formation um yeah how how regularly do you get to work that in uh and what are some of your hopes with that yeah you know um we lived in the uk for for five years with my kids and while there you know we were able to crisscross all over England, just visiting, you know, my kids kind of got to the point they were like, okay, another castle and cathedral, <laughs> dad. I think we've seen this yeah. one, but you know, they've been to, you know, Tintagel where, you know, King Arthur was born. They've been, you know, to Carefilly Castle in Southern Wales, part of the ring of ring of iron to suppress the Welsh. You know, they've been there a dozen mm-hmm. times. They've been to Tintern Abbey. They know it like that. I mean, you know, they, 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 mm-hmm. they know that super well, as well as, you know, London and Scotland and, and, you know, Canterbury. We were mm-hmm. one time in Canterbury uh, for the feast of St. Thomas when we were in the cathedral and the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, led the, commemora- wow. the commemorative service and murder in the cathedral was reenacted. And we went down into the crypt, you know. Wow. We've been to Greece. Uh, we've been to Sicily. We went to, uh, we went to Syracuse, another great ancient city, obviously called Magna Graecia, bound up mm-hmm. uh, in the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta, major battle there. Mm-hmm. You know, to walk them to, um, you know, uh, Olympia, where the Olympics were held, to walk mm-hmm. them through uh, Delphi, to walk them through Athens, to go to Canossus, to go to Mycenae with them, to go to Corinth with them. I mean, I'm trying to give my kids uh, a sense of the largeness of the world, but also mm-hmm. the depth and history of the world. Mm-hmm. And so to take my daughter, Ilya, who's now 20 and a member of the Honors College, we went to Morocco together and went to Tunisia together. Mm-hmm. She was doing a, a, a gap year in, back in Oxford, uh, internship at our church there. 
I want to spark their imaginations. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to form their affections for this kind of thing. And mm-hmm. as any of us know, you can tell a kid, you, you could tell a kid a, a book is great to read, or you can read it to them mm-hmm. and enact it out. I mean, this yeah. is, you know, yeah. Kenneth Branagh, right, great Shakespearean actor, hated Shakespeare through high school. Because yeah. he'd only read it. Yeah. First time he saw it and had that kind of poetic knowledge and right. experience of uh, he fell in love. And right. so it's the same kind of thing with, with travel. Um yeah. trying to give my own children form their own affections yeah. uh, for these these kind of places and these kind of stores and these kind of people. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I think world's a wonderful place and I want these places and these people to live in their imagination yeah. so, as well as I want them to encounter, you know, other, other, other cultures and yeah. other ways of doing things and other food and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, yeah. So when we get the chance, you know, we've done this kind of thing with our, our kids. And certainly when we live in Oxford, you know, I mean, it was a six hour trip from Oxford to Paris, you know, mm-hmm. so you, you take them to France and different places around France. Yeah. And we did a wonderful World War One or World War Two, two kind of tour through Normandy and areas like yeah. that. And I think it, yeah, it, it, especially now that we've come back to the States mm-hmm. where, you know, it's a little boring to live sometimes because everyone speaks English and an American accent. Um, you know, they realize what they've been given versus some of their friends. Yeah. Anyway, so not everyone's had those kind of opportunities that we have, but I always encourage people to do, you know, Find ways to give your your children or your students poetic knowledge yeah, of these yeah. kind of places. When I was one note, when I was at Care Paravel Latin School teaching, Care Paravel from its first days, uh, you know, in the eighties, has always taken a week every spring to take its students from grade five to twelve on trips around the country. Yeah. So I used to lead a student trip to to New York, uh, and yeah. st- students would go to D.C. and they'd go to a, a dude ranch and. Colorado and they'd go to California and they'd yeah. go to Texas. And then with my Latin teacher started leading trips to, to Europe for the same thing, for the yeah. same reason to high school students, you know, yeah. we had Greece and Italy and central Europe, just trying to expand the uh, imaginations uh, of our children yeah. and our students. So. Thank you. The, um, one of the labors I know you've been involved with heavily last uh, couple of years with the renewal kind of more broadly, even than your, your work specifically here at Eastern university is, um, the journal, mm. Principia. Uh, what are some highlights mm. from that story? Uh, who have you worked with? What are you know? What are some of the things you're you're most excited about as you get a, a peer reviewed journal off? The yeah, ground? this is really exciting. It's been a joint labor of love for, for a lot of us, especially um, Rob Jackson from the Great Hearts Institute and Matthew Post, who was at University of Dallas and now mm-hmm. at University of, of Tulsa. You know what I realized when I came back to the States from Oxford and was getting involved in the classical education world again, realized there are a lot of us who, you know, some with advanced degrees, some not, who present at conferences and are doing a lot of good, I think, intellectual work on the tradition with related to its, you know, its history, its theory, its pedagogy. Mm But there was no place for us to publish our work because you mm-hmm. couldn't publish it in a standard classics journal, which is really right. about kind of, you know, literature and language of Greece and Rome. Right. And you couldn't publish it in a standard kind of education journal, most of them, because yeah. most of them are oriented kind of progressive education yeah. or simply pedagogical techniques. So I kind of had this realization that classical education was its own subgenre or subfield in the academic world and that to provide a platform for people like me to publish things and other people 
and to encourage graduate students to do research in the classical yeah. tradition, we needed a venue. Yeah. And that meant a peer-reviewed academic journal. And so yeah. I don't, you know, I talked about this with David Diener as well from Hillsdale. He and I were in Africa together four years ago, and we were talking about some of the work he was involved in. I said, mm -hmm. man, we need a, we got to have a peer-reviewed academic journal as well to give, I think, some academic credibility to yeah. what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, the peer review process is serious. And yeah. uh, the authors who have published with us know that it's a serious process because, you know, even, you know, these people will submit an article and it'll go through a lot of rounds before it comes out in the journal. Yeah. Um, and so we had serious conversations. Um, I actually remember a, a Zoom conversation with Rob and Matt when I was at the Cap Studios doing mm -hmm. something. And we had a, but uh, Rob and Matt and I met kind of every other week for uh, a while, several months to really get it going. And then yeah. COVID hit, kind of slowed things down. But then built this really wonderful editorial team of other yes. people like us, you know, Julia Hayduck and Phil Donnelly from Baylor. David Diener from Hillsdale, as I mentioned, um, Angel Adams Parham, who's now at, at UVA, uh, Rob Jackson, me, Matt, uh, and then we put together a, an advisory team yep. of people like Eric Ashley Hairston from Wake Forest, um, uh, folks from Princeton, folks from Baylor, folks from Andrew Zwerneman, a lot of people who have been involved in classical education. Um, Hamza Youssef from Zaytuna College and, and people yeah. who, you know, would generally lend their name in support of this project. And so yeah. it's, it's a, it's a lot of work. I'm general editor and we probably would have more issues if I had more time to, you know, to kind of pump out <laughs> more issues. Uh, but my assistant editorial, my editorial assistant, Nathan Antiel, mm -hmm. who also works at CAP and who came through our masters of classical education here in Templeton. Yeah. Uh, he's just been invaluable as well. And so it's, I think our first two issues, we just brought out the second issue uh, within the last month. I think they're good pieces of work. Yeah. And I'm grateful to Baylor University for hosting our website for the Philosophy Documentation Center for publishing it. I mean, it's a free open access online journal. Yeah. We are also uh, printing copies of it to distribute at conferences and to select schools that ask for them. And so I think it's it's been one other piece that the movement, if you will, has needed to help it mature. Yeah. Um, when I came back from Oxford, I thought, you know, we need grad programs to train some of our teachers. And now, you know, we have our grad program here at Templeton. UD has its great program. Gordon has its program for leaders in the classical school world. I also thought we needed a journal. Now we're, we've got yeah. a peer-reviewed academic journal started. And I think, you know, we're moving more of these pieces in place. You know, we've got the CLTs, a, a great standardized test, uh, more of these pieces in place to just really entrench classical education in such a way that, as I tell Chris Parent all the time, can we, we can stop calling it a movement. It's just <laughs> classical education. It's a thing. It's a thing that's here and it's a thing that's going to stay. So let's just stop calling it a movement yep. um, and just say it is classical education. Right. Something that's been around, you know, well over 2000 years. You'd think it, it didn't have to, uh, you know, be graced with movement or renewal or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. We're just yep. the latest moment in a, you know, 2500 year old history yep. here and it's gone through it's waxed and waned, obviously, yeah. but it is what it is. And we're just, you know, doing our thing in the moment. So, 
Well, we're uh, winding down on time, but I did want to see mm. if we could fit in one more question. Uh, the Women in the Tradition course, which right. is our, our reason for working together today, um, and, and some other um, you know, great conversations and materials, books in the, uh, in the uh, most recent iteration. I'm avoiding renewal or movement. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the, the, the ongoing work of classical There education. you go. Thank you. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of conversation um, recently about the nature of the canon. Hmm. Um, and uh, I wonder if you have any just kind of, you know, um, you wrote about it, uh, you know, in, in, the hmm. jour- in a journal piece. So obviously you could go on. Uh, some length, but just but briefly, don't, what are, what are, are you saying? Yeah, that's a kind <laughs> way to say, but don't. That's nice of you, yeah. Jesse. What are some high points, and as you kind of follow this conversation, uh, you know, key key yeah, points sure. that you want to drive home? Sure, you know, and I'll, I'll just say that along with um, my interest in ha- starting a, a grad program and feeling the need for a peer-reviewed journal, when I came back from the UK. I also thought we need to give serious thought to our inclusion of uh, women in our in our curricula from the tradition, and at least African American voices from the tradition. And so, that those have been two concerns of mine for the last really six seven years, and I've been grateful uh, to work with folks like Anika Prather and Angel Adams Perum. We led during COVID for the SCL conference, a, a race channel on some of these kinds of things mm-hmm. and been trying to introduce into my talks and writings, uh, African-American classicists, uh, from the tradition and, and women from the tradition, um, that are largely just unknown. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, it's a bit of recovery or repair work to say, you know, these authors, they're there. Mm-hmm. They had an influence. They were, they were deeply immersed in the tradition, and we ought to know about them uh, for, for multiple reasons. Not, not just because these are questions our contemporary moment is asking, right. but, but that's no small thing. I mean, yeah. to say... Yeah, those are good questions, and maybe we need to do a little bit more work there, but we have responses. We, we, we have mm-hmm. a way to answer that. that this, mm-hmm. this isn't a tradition of just, if you will, you know, dead white European male. Right. Um, there's been really good work, obviously, on, I mean, and, and Cap, you know, published uh, Anika and Angel's uh, book on this, and a lot of work done there, and we hosted um, Angel along with er- Ashley Hairston, whose wonderful book, The Ebony Column, mm-hmm. uh, was published several years ago, and Cornell West. We had them on campus for a, a session on classical education and the black intellectual tradition, mm-hmm. trying to do the same kind of thing yeah. now with women in the liberal arts tradition. I teach as part of our MAT program a course called The History and Philosophy of Ancient Medieval Education. Mm-hmm. And a part of that month-long uh, online course is, is a week on women in the tradition, and it's really been remarkable to me and really satisfying the last several times I've taught it to, you know, almost to a person in the class. My students like Jolie Hodge at, at CAP, who's really kind of the impetus behind the classical U course. She said, why have we never heard of these people? Mm-hmm. Why, why did I not know about them? Why have I not read them? Why did I think that no women were educated at all mm-hmm. until like what, the 19th or 18th century? Yeah. But to find... Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of work of discovery. Um, yeah. And it's a little bit like, you know, I have this talk and article on history of grades and grading. Mm-hmm. Just to say, let's do a little bit of this kind of historical work and find out what's actually there. Yeah. And so when you start digging in and you find somebody like Christine de Pizan, yeah, you're like, how is she? And I'll <laughs> say, 
I was in a room of academics trying to think of like authors, I won't say for what, but you know, authors that we might introduce to students. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned Christine de Pizan, and out of a room of probably 40 academics involved in our mm -hmm. uh, classical education, only one other person who happened yeah. to be a Harvard historian had heard of her, you wow. know? Yeah. And she's she's amazing. Yeah. And Duota and, you know, more contemporary authors, you know, like Dorothy Sayers or Flannery O'Connor or, you know, yeah. Anna G. Cooper. So anyway, it's just, it's a work to say to, you know, classical education, listen, these women are there. They were educated. They received the tradition. They passed it on. We can learn from them because, I mean, Christine has this great line where she's, you know, she's, she sounds sometimes like a first wave feminist, you know, the 20th century, but she's speaking as a Christian deeply immersed in the classical tradition. And she looks at some of the books from the tradition and she just says, if women had written these, they wouldn't have been written like this. They wouldn't portray men and women and love and society in this kind of way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, besides all of her work on politics and culture, there's just fascinating stuff. So mm -hmm. I think it's important for us, just for the sake of truth, to know that they're there. Yeah. And for the sake of our contemporary students, both men and women, for yeah. our boys to see, oh, no, they're deeply educated, uh, influential women from the tradition we ought to know about and mm -hmm. models for our, our women. And I think that we ought to be reading these women. I think their portraits ought to be up in our schools. And I think they just ought to be regular conversation partners. And, you know, on the canon question, some of these women, it, it is very clear, like Christine de Pizan, they were their books were suppressed and not disseminated because they were women. Or for her, several of them were published, uh, but not in her name. Mm -hmm. uh, presumably because she was a woman. So you might say, well, they haven't been part of the canon historically because maybe they didn't have the influence other than, you know, like Sappho, obviously, didn't have the influence of some of their mm -hmm. male counterparts. To which I say, yeah, but the canon has always been porous. You know, nobody yeah. read Dante before Dante wrote. Nobody read Shakespeare before Shakespeare wrote. Nobody read, uh, you know, Epic of Gilgamesh until the 19th mm -hmm. century because we didn't know it existed. Yeah. But as soon as we discovered these things... We put them into the canon and put them in dialogue with everybody else. So there's no yeah. reason that now we can't take these women and reintroduce them to our curricula yeah. uh, and put them in dialogue in the canon for future generations. Um, because the canon, I mean, the canon is just like what we read and what mm -hmm. we see in dialogue with the, each other. Mm -hmm. And so every, every, I mean, this is what happens in a tradition, and I won't wax too eloquent here, Jesse, but indulge me. Every generation receives a certain set of texts and questions from the generation before it. Yeah. And that current generation, like ours, has to decide, okay, which of those do we keep? Which of those are relevant to us? But maybe there were things two generations ago mm -hmm. that the just previous generation didn't pass on, but we recognize that we need now. Yeah. And I would say that's kind of where we're at with some of these authors and yeah. some of these, in this case, you know, some of these, these women, we need to hear their voices mm -hmm. and it would be right to do so. And then to pass on to the next generation, a, a, a curricula of books and authors where it was just normative that you read Duota about moral formation of children and normative and just normal that you read Christine de Bazan in dialogue with Boccaccio and Dante and Augustine and Plato and normal that you read, you know, Flannery O'Connor or Anna G. Cooper. So the next generation, it's not, they don't have to do that recovery work. They don't have to right. do that repair work. Right. And so I think it's kind of a, a vocation perhaps laid on some of us in this moment to do some of that work for the sake of our current schools, but then for the sake of successive generations that come after us.
us. And that's what it means to be part of a tradition and certainly the classical tradition. Good. Well, thank you so much, Brian. It's been uh, great to be with you. Thanks, man. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Classical U podcast. Please do check out our website, classicalu.com, and our teacher magazine, Altum. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations with presenters and live learning event hosts with Classical U.